0: And welcome back to the Curiosity Chamber. This is season three, episode 17. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give me a follow and leave a review. Also, you can check me out on TikTok and Instagram at the Curiosity Chamber. Without further ado, today's episode is going to be co host with my buddy Ali Ahmed. And with us today, is an American Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. He has held a fellowship in clinical psychopharmacology research at the University of California, San Diego, and was Professor of Psychiatry for 11 years at the University of New Mexico. After 20 years of intermission, he was the first person in the United States to undertake human research with psychedelic hallucinogenic, and enthegenic substances in his research on DMT. He is the author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and also his newest book, The Psychedelic Handbook. This is Rick Strassman. And we're live. We're live right now. (laughs) Hey, Dr. Strassman. Thanks for being here. And uh, congratulations on the new release of your book, The Psychedelic Handbook.
1: Uh, Well, thanks, uh, Jay. Good to be on your show. And uh, it's good timing. The book just came out last week.
0: Yes, yes. And Ali, thank you for being here as well. Happy to have you. Thanks for having me. I got a notification last week showing you finally made it into the, uh, the Joe Rogan podcasts and that uh, I almost beat Joe to the punch having you on the curiosity chamber first, but you know, unfortunately I got that notification. That's that's kind of bizarre. It took that long for you to get onto that show. Um, has, how was that experience and have a bunch of people reached out to you since doing that? Cause I know he has a huge, huge following. Uh, he's got a huge following. Uh,
1: well, the first time I actually met Joe was 2005. Uh, you know, somebody had written me and uh, you know told me that Joe was talking a lot about my DMT book, The Spirit Molecule, and this was 2005. I had not heard of Joe Rogan, uh, and this guy gave me Joe's phone number, and uh, I called him, uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it was great. He was at the airport. He said, hey, man, I'm at the airport reading your book. I love it. Um, and then uh, we met at Starbucks in the San Fernando Valley in uh, two thousand nine. Yeah, and you know that was the first time we had met, you know, face to face. You know, there were a couple of previous opportunities to be on Joe's show, but it just didn't really feel quite the right time uh, until uh, this new book uh, you know came out. I think you know the new book is. You know, kind of my, uh, I don't know, uh, it's a mature view of the field and it took a long time to come to. So uh, I think, you know, before I wouldn't have had my ideas quite so well organized. Um, yeah, it was it was great fun. I mean, we sat down and then, you know, four hours later we were done, including some <laughs> bathroom breaks. But uh, four yeah. hours.
0: Um, that's so long. I was going to listen to it, but I haven't yet, just because I knew that we were going to have our conversation, and I didn't want my judgment to be clouded. I suppose from listening to that podcast. I saw it was almost four hours, so I I, I couldn't do it to myself. I'll do it after this podcast. But um, did you did you guys do psychedelics after that? I know he's huge in. I know he's huge into it.
1: Uh, no, no, we didn't. You know, he asked me if I wanted to come to a comedy club where he was doing, a uh, um, um, where he was doing a show that night. Yeah, but I was tired. Uh, yeah, I believe it. You know, I just flown in the day before then, uh, you know, uh, like a whole afternoon, uh, of an interview. Yeah. And I was flying out the next day. So I figured I yeah. should just get my sleep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you for doing that. I'm excited to listen to it. But let's go ahead and get into this. Um, So what is it about being human and wanting to be intoxicated to a degree? I mean, like even little kids, I have a five-year-old and his favorite thing to do at the park is sit in this chair and spin, spin really fast so he gets disoriented. So there's a a feeling that I get that even kids want to be not intoxicated, but feel off. You know, not like your
1: normal sobriety. Um, Well, I think that the urge to alter consciousness is, uh, yeah, it's inherent. It's, you know, it's, you know, uh, um, almost built in, Uh, you know, Andrew Weil, uh, the alternative medicine uh, fellow, um, his first book was called The Natural Mind. Um, came out in the early 70s, late 60s. Um and in it he suggests that the urge to alter consciousness is as fundamental as the urge to sex and food yeah. and sleep. Um it, it, it extends into other animal species as well that uh you know like to eat intoxicating berries and uh the like. Um yeah, you know, so it is uh you know, built into us, you know, why that's the case, uh, you know, it's a little more complicated. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I've um, actually been microdosing for the past week with psilocybin, definitely microdosed today. And I was telling Ali last week about it and it just, my brain is processing things. It seems more efficiently, which in turn makes it, more effective i suppose and i'm usually pretty forgetful but since microdosing there's just like this clarity and it, it seems like a imagine a stream of water and there's a log that's blocking it so the water has to find a way to fight around that log and continue on to the stream but when i've been microdosing it seems like that log has been removed so everything is just flowing in a in a straight line with all the power and all the rapids. It it I don't I don't know. I have no idea, but it's been super beneficial for me. Um I know that Ali tried a microdose the other day. Um how was that experience, Ali? Yeah,
2: it was uh you know, I had some clarity, some focus. Uh it it was um it was nice. Everything was a lot more vibrant.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. Well, you know, in a way, you're both talking about, you know, what would be called, you know, sub-psychedelic doses. They're still acutely, you know, psychoactive, you know, but they're not, you know, psychedelic per se. They kind of hint at what's in store at a higher dose, you know, but they're still, you know, psychoactive. You know, when it comes, you know, to microdosing, I think, you know, people vary on what the, mean when they use that term, I, you know, some yeah. micro doses are you know, tiny, tiny micro doses where you don't feel anything at all, you know, some are slightly higher and make you feel like you've been on some caffeine, just some stimulation, maybe, uh, you know, greater attentiveness and, and, uh, you know, then there's, uh, you know, higher micro doses, um, where things do get sparkly um, and you, uh, you have a you know, feeling of where things would lead um, at an uh, even higher dose.
0: Yeah, I've been um, taking about 0. 0.5 grams, 0. 0.4 to 0. 0.5. And I guess an important question to ask is how often am I able to take this? Is there, is there a risk of dependency on this? cuz it feels it feels pretty damn good when i'm taking it like i i feel like a better version of myself but i don't want to be dependent on
1: something um yeah i guess it depends on what you're looking for uh in animal studies you know test tube studies uh the effects of uh psilocybin on neuroplasticity uh extend for between you know 2 to 4 weeks after just a uh, uh, you know, single exposure, you know, so if you're interested in the neuroplastic effects without any specific uh, or um, any particular acute subjective effect, um, you, um, according to the animal data anyway, the neuroplasticity effects might extend for up to a month after just a single dose, um, you know, so, you know, but if you're interested in acute subjective effect, um, I don't think it would you know, be maintained after a few days if you were taking a sub psychedelic dose. If 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 you were doing that every day because of tolerance, um, you know, so it uh you know just depends. It's it, I think at this point it's just uh, uh you know trial and error. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the scientific data um are taking a lot you know longer to come in than. Uh, the anecdotal reports uh, of people experimenting in the field. Right.
0: When, when you do psychedelics, do these places already live in your minds or is it kind of like, like self-construction? Do these, when you take psilocybin, for example, does it open a passage to see that like what's already in there or is this a door into the subconscious or is it something completely brand new?
1: Um, Well, I think uh, these drugs reveal what's previously invisible. You know, so, you know, where the things perceived exist, I mean, they could be objective, alternative layers of reality, or they just could be your brain on drugs, more or less. You're <laughs> able to you know, tap into memories and feelings and ideas that uh, were, you know that were latent, but uh, they really weren't, uh, you know, conscious. You know, yeah. so I don't think we can really you know, say one way or the other. I think the important thing is to get as much useful information as you can from the experiences, you know, no matter where the content actually exists. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So what got you started on your, uh, your exploration of psychedelics? What, what drove you to this? And how old were you? Were You're pretty young, when you got started?
1: Um, well, as a kid, I liked making bombs, and I liked making fireworks. Uh, in fact, I started college as a chemistry major uh thinking i would start my own line of uh, fireworks uh but you know people discouraged me they you know, said you're a smart guy you should be a doctor so uh, what did they know yeah <laughs> what did they know um you know, but in a way i got the last laugh because instead of like external fireworks i That's was true. able to you know, move <laughs> them inward um you know so i was always interested in chemistry and um uh, the first time I smoked marijuana was a a fully psychedelic experience. And um you, besides enjoying it, it really piqued my curiosity as well, in as much as a half hour you know, previously I was completely in my you know normal state, and then smoking this this plant material uh just you know, created such a uh you know radical shift in uh perception you know that I was intrigued i thought there's some changes in you know, chemistry in the brain brought about by you know, cannabis and uh you know what are those brain chemistry changes and you know, where are they located and you know how do they work uh you know so um i kind of uh just started from there uh, you know that was when i was maybe 18 19 years old yeah. And I went to medical school because of my interest in psychedelics. Yeah. You uh, became a psychiatrist, you know, took more training and more training after that.
0: It seems like your mind works a little bit different than the, uh, the average, you know, tripper, if you will. Like most people just like to hold on for the ride and just enjoy the moment. But you want uh, to really dig into what is making this happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was just stunned. I was just amazed. I, you know, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I, it, 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 I mean, in, in a way it was a love at your first, uh, you know, sight, like I was hooked to like, you know, this is the most interesting thing there is and I'm going to you know, take it as far as I can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ali, do you have any experiences on, uh, psychedelics? oh man uh i have plenty of experiences but
2: i mean i guess even before that one of my uh one of my best friends he's a psychiatrist and um he has basically told me that in most of the hospitals that he's worked at psychedelics are you know not just looked down upon but they're seen as kind of these uh um kind of and all be all devil devil substances, and it might be that he's working in, in rural Texas at times, but, uh, h- how has the, uh, how has the change been in the perception of the public been, uh, you know, com- compared to, let's say 40, 50 years ago?
1: Um, well, the perception of the you know, safety, you know, and, you know, the tolerability of, you know, psychedelics has been, uh, you know, gradually um, becoming better known. Uh, so our studies um, started in, uh, uh, started in um, 1990, uh, and uh, it was the first FDA and uh, you know, DEA-approved human study with these drugs for um, 20 years or so. Um, you know, so we opened the door to being able to study these drugs in humans again, uh you know, but it was in New Mexico, it was kind of off the radar. Um, and uh, our, and our studies were in normal volunteers too. We weren't in, uh, interested in uh, you know psychotherapeutic or spiritual effects. Um, but still it opened you know the door to other groups then expanding on our original work and taking it back into in the uh, you know, psychotherapy and the spirituality arenas. Um, you know, so there were a few studies after mine, there was a, you know, psilocybin OCD study in Arizona. Uh, there were two MDMA studies, one at Wayne state and one at UCLA. And, uh, you know, there were some Ibogaine research taking place at the university of Miami. And I helped all of those groups get started. Um, and you know, then the Hopkins. Uh, know, papers, you began, you know, coming out, you know, which induced or, you know, which were oriented, you know, not towards, you know, basic psychopharmacology, but, you know, more towards the spirituality aspect. And, you know, that, you know, really fired the public's imagination. And so, you know, there have been, you know, more and more studies. But I think the Hopkins work and Michael Pollan's Um, You know, discussion of it has probably, um, you know, really accelerated the interest and acceptability. You know, on the other hand, uh, we don't want to be over-optimistic, and there are plenty of adverse effects that Mm. come about uh, from the use of psychedelics. You know, so I think there is going to be some uh, backlash, uh, you know, once the increased accessibility uh, comes into effect, there's going to be more adverse reactions, which will be publicized. Um, you know, so we're going to need to be ready to respond to those uh, increasingly frequent, you know, negative reports of the effects. Yeah, and if you're a psychiatrist and you think that you know these are the drugs of the devil, and <laughs> you know somebody comes in. You know, saying I you know take these drugs, you know that psychiatrist's response will be completely different than the response of you know somebody who's interested in studies and thinks there's you know a potential benefits sure. you know, to using psychedelics.
0: Here's the issue that I have with some with some doctors, I, I guess doctors that have never tried psychedelics, they don't have that experience, and they're they're trying to you know like wave it out of the way and say this 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 will never help yada 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 but they don't have the experience they don't they've never lived it like you you've tried psychedelics so i would much more rather take your word than a physician that has never taken psychedelics the reason why i bring this up is because i have a friend who who's going through some mental issues and i guess the uh the doctors wanted to have him do the ketamine therapy, and um, so he went in there and, and did it, but the, the doctor that was walking him through it had no idea what it was actually going to be like, and the the description he gave to him, what it was going to be like, was completely off, like not even close, like just probably like your broad statements. Yeah, you'll you'll see some thoughts, mm-hmm. and you know, you'll be... I don't even know what they would say, but it was very broad and it wasn't even on point. He's like, when I, when they injected me with that, (laughs) like I was immediately transported to somewhere else. I couldn't move. I I thought I was screaming. And I was like in this dream state where I was trying to wake myself up. And I was saying to myself, if, if you're asleep, you can't bite your hand. So he tried biting his hands and it, Jeez. It, I guess it was a mess, but the doctor did not describe that to him because he's never experienced it. So that's the, the kind of issue I have. Maybe it's an education problem, a learning issue. Uh, what are your stances on that, Dr. Rick?
1: Um, well, you need to be able to provide informed consent when you're giving people these kinds of drugs, um, you know, the informed consent needs to describe uh, what to expect, uh, adverse or uh, positive. Um, I don't think you need to be experienced with the drugs to provide good informed consent. Um, I mean, you could you know, read the literature and become uh, you know, familiar with with what people say about the effects of ketamine um, or any other uh, you know, psychedelic-like drug, um, and I, I don't think you, well. I think if you've experienced you know the drug, you have an additional perspective from which to provide informed consent. Uh, but I don't think it's a guarantee. I mean, there's people who take uh, you know, psychedelics who uh, really either you had a bad experience or they completely misinterpreted what happened or they used it in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, you know, one's experience with these compounds, you know, can help in providing a good informed consent process, but, you know, not necessarily. Um, yeah. You know, so that's a scary story. Well, you know, I've been hearing more and more (laughs) scary ketamine clinic stories these days. Uh, wow. That you know, people are just being you know, given you know, big doses of ketamine, and uh, yeah, it was a big dose sick.
0: because he wasn't feeling it for the first—I don't know—thirty seconds, maybe. He's like, "I'm not feeling shit. Give me more." And the doctor's like, "Okay," and then loaded him up, I guess. And that's—he <laughs> gave him more.
1: Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> you know, he was. Uh, yeah, it was his first experience with it, and uh, he's been going through some mental stuff for quite a bit. So he's been all. Over the spectrum, I guess, on taking medication and this was maybe like a a last chance and he was he's like, I paid six hundred bucks for this shit and I'm not feeling anything (laughs) thirty seconds, load me up. So the doctor administered more and then that happened. And there was no benefit to it. I I asked him the other day, I'm like, Well, did 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 anything work? Like, are you are you okay now? And he's like, No.
1: Jeez. Yeah, I think that you, if you're going to be hyping these you know, drugs as instant panaceas, I mean, there's just going to be disappointment because they're not panaceas and uh, the effects can be adverse. Uh, yeah, well, you know, there's just quality control and quality control often boils down to education. Um, and uh, that's what my new book is about. You know, basically, it's a little textbook. Yeah. Uh, and it isn't an advocacy piece or it's not a horror piece. It's just like a textbook is like to educate people on, uh, you know, what these drugs are, what they do, how they do it, uh, you know, how to make the most of your experiences, how to avoid problems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Me and Ali got an issue and, uh, I wanted to hand it off to Ali and, um, ask what you thought of the book. If you have any questions for Dr. Rick, you know, you're, you're
2: I, I guess, talking about patient education, uh, in your book, you mentioned that there were kind of three pillars to, quote unquote, psychedelics training, and you had it broken up into to scientific and the mind, which I guess is psychological, and then the, the, the spiritual side of things. Uh, I, I guess we all know the, you know, kind of the gist of what the scientific training would be. Uh, can you delve a little bit into the psychological training and the, the spiritual training and then what you did? um that that's definitely interesting uh, what you mentioned inside of your book about going back to judaism um
1: yeah so which book are you referring to
2: oh uh so your most recent book the psychedelic handbook oh the handbook um
1: oh okay and you were thinking about or you were referring to the kind of training i suggest that people get
2: yes yes
1: yeah yeah. Um, well, I think you need to be as well trained as you can if you're going to be tripping people, uh, and even if you're just going to be tripping yourself. But uh, you know, especially if you're going to be doing research, you really want to be on the top uh, of your game and the field, um, and you know, cover all the bases. Um, yeah, the I mean, scientific training is you know. So uh, you go to medical school, or you you get a. a, a psychology doctorate uh and you learn how to do research um the uh you know, psychological work uh you know it just refers to knowing uh you know who you are what makes you the way you are uh you know point out your shortcomings uh point out your strengths you know to know yourself to know what motivates you um, you know when you're you know, giving psychedelics, uh, there's a lot of you know, projection that comes your way, you know, that you're a you know, savior or you're a torturer uh, or just you're nobody at all. Sure. You know, so you need to be prepared uh, for those kinds of reactions. Uh, you don't want to take them on, but you still want to be able you know, to work with them. Um, and that's the kind of training that you get when you learn how to do psychotherapy. Um, you understand yourself first of all, and then you use your own self to reflect upon what's going on with the person that you're working with and, uh, you know, kind of establish a beneficial dynamic, uh, you know, between their psychology and your psychology. Um, I, I think this, the, this, the spiritual part of things also plays a role, uh, in as much as uh, it helps you appreciate and you know work with uh, you know higher, you know higher values, you know higher, uh, you know powers, um, yeah, you know more complex, non you know, physical kinds of uh, you know kinds of items, um, you know uh, the existence of God. Uh, you know, the notion of enlightenment, all those things. Uh, You know, if you're familiar with, you know, the traditions overall and you have experience with one particular tradition, I think that can be quite useful. You know, like I um, studied under the supervision of a Zen organization for a long time, over 20 years. And the uh, experience of discipleship and, you know, the love of your teacher, you know, those kinds of things uh, can Uh, you know, play out and you're working with, uh, you know, people, you know, the notion of you know helping people along a spiritual path uh, or interfering with their spiritual growth. Um, And also, you know, this, the, the, you know, practices that you learn in a spiritual tradition, if you really work hard with them, you know, like in my case, you know, Zen meditation, um, you can induce or you can experience some altered states and you can learn about you know the traditions view of those altered states um, yeah you know so uh, I think both you know personally for your own experiences you know tripping uh, and as a, a you know, sitter or you know supervising people's work or you know their sessions you uh, I think the spiritual and the you know, psychological training uh, can be you know, quite helpful.
2: You, you mentioned altered states, um, and I assume this is without the use of psychedelics. Can you delve in a little bit uh, into that? Uh, I mean, I've been fascinated with other folks that have mentioned that, oh, yeah, you know, my meditation can lead to uh, a state where, where you'll, you know, trip more than you, if you were to take LSD.
0: Also, Um, breathing exercises as well, I believe.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I think that's a bit unusual um, to have those kinds of meditative experiences, um, although you hear about them. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, the kind of uh, practice I was doing was just – it's called just sitting. Um, Okay. You just – you bring all of your attention to sitting. Um, and that's pretty much it. Everything else which occurs is, you know, kind of a distraction. Um, you just want to focus all of your attention on the process of sitting, you know, what's it, what is going on at the moment. Um, you know, so the effects, at least, you know, in my experience, you know, weren't especially psychedelic, you know, but they did help improve my focus and concentration and I could, uh, you work things. Uh, I'm like a, uh, you know, work things out uh, in a way that um, required you know deconstructing, um, you know, everyday experience into its component parts, which you could then uh, you know work with uh, individually uh, in the pursuit of you know larger goals. You know, but they weren't especially psychedelic, like you know visual or auditory or right. those kinds of things. Um, yeah. And, you know, everybody, uh, you know, dreams, you know, that's, a really, you know, that's a, you know, very uh, highly altered state. Um, yeah. Sleep, anesthesia, alcohol, marijuana. Uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, breathing exercises can induce you know, powerful altered states as well. Uh, you know, kundalini breathing or, uh, uh, you know, holotropic breath work that Stan Groff developed. Mm-hmm. Um you know, some uh, you know meditation practices are you know they're intended you know to you know, be psychedelic especially things like visualization that the Tibetans do uh, you construct these uh, you know visual images in your mind and associate other you know, properties to those images you know, work with those images you know but Zen is you know, fairly bare bones uh, as compared uh, you know, to some other traditions
0: I often think to myself like Buddhist monks sometimes will take like forty to forty-five years to have that one giant experience, whereas the normal person can just take a, a, t- a tab of LSD, the express lane, and have that yeah. experience in thirty minutes, right?
1: Um, well, you can, you know, but the context is, uh, you, you know, much different. Um, you know, like if you're a monk for you know twenty to thirty years. Uh, I mean, you've been you know, training in a lot of other ways, um, and you've been becoming a better person. You know, hopefully through your training, um, and also if you know they do have a major experience after you know twenty years of meditation or prayer, it's the you know confirmation that they're on the right path, as opposed to the goal of their path. You know, so as opposed to you know, taking LSD and you know, having an experience, and you could say, "Oh, mm-hmm. you know, that was mystical." Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm cool. Uh, in the um, in uh, the case of an acolyte, you know, like a disciple or a monk or a, uh, you yeah, know, or a monk. Uh, yeah, it's a it, it you know confirms. Uh, what you've been studying and you're know, practicing for the preceding 20 years, and it encourages you to you know take the next steps. I'm involved in your development as opposed to you know, resting on your you know, resting on your laurels.
0: That's a good point. I, I I do often think this too that sometimes the journey is is so much more significant and important than the finish line because all the things that you learn you take from the experiences leading up to that can be Well, it is life-changing.
1: Yeah, there is no finish line, really. (laughs) Right,
0: right, right. (laughs) Uh, There's an important part in your book, uh, set and settings that I I couldn't agree more with. And for example, I I took LSD in a house and I just got – my feelings were so – so heightened of just like dysphoria just kind of everything seemed clustered and i I felt like i was in a cage and very uncomfortable opposed to when i've uh, usually i go to uh, florida every year fort myers and i'll drop acid on the beach every year and that experience Mm -hmm. is just the most profound enlightening experience i i have every time I do it too, it's just like so much bliss and euphoria and just connection and something that keeps overplaying in my head is just be just, just, just let it be just open up and whatever happens, happens. You'll, you'll find your path and just like, it's really helped with my anxiety and just living in general. And there's no more being scared of the afterlife or, I've had these profound experiences and the the set and setting I think has a lot to do with the mindset. Would
1: you agree? I don't think you can have an experience without a set and setting the set and setting. Well, well, the set is you, uh, you know, what you bring to the experience that day, what what you bring to the trip, your mental health, spiritual health, psychological Mm -hmm. health, uh, your, planning, preparation, intention, uh, you, you know, how you've, you know, set things up on um, the setting is, uh, you know, the external environment, which, you know, could be indoors, outdoors, or it could be alone or with, with people and, you know, who are those people? Um, yeah, yeah, you know, so everything depends. Well, there's, you know, three legs of the tripod of a psychedelic, you know, drug experience. Uh, you know, there's the set and the setting and the drug. Uh, and when it comes to the drug, it's the specific drug for sure, you know, but also the dose, like, is it going to be a small trip or a medium trip or a big trip? Right. Um, yeah, you know, so, you know, most of the work, uh, occurs, you know, like, you know, uh, well, you know, most of the, the stage is, uh, you know, set, you know, long before you trip. Um, and you know, then you trip and, Then you integrate the experience, you know, uh, you know, depending on your set and uh, the setting as well. You know, what kind of experience was it? You know, what's your understanding of it? What do the people around you think about it?
0: The setting can have a major effect on the set. Would you say? Uh, The reason I bring that up is because I just got done watching a Netflix series called Woodstock '99. I don't know if you've you've taken a look at it, but it was um, it, it was supposed to be. Woodstock 69, they thought they can do it again, but instead they brought heavy metal music <laughs> to this. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people and my curiosity was sparked when Woodstock 69 like it was peace, love and you know it was like counterculture and they were able to do it. And then after watching this Woodstock 99, it was it was this it was the same premise but just a completely different outcome because of I wonder the music or the people that was that were brought there because of the music. I I, it it was just night and day, but it was the same premise. But I mean, if you watch it, it was just complete destruction, like destroying tents and RVs and just setting things on fire.
1: It's horrible. Were people taking acid?
0: Yeah. So yeah, (laughs) yeah, acid. There was a lot of drinking
1: course. Yeah. Um, well, there's just no guarantee that, uh, taking LSD is going to make you into, you know, peace, love and light. I mean, look at Charles Manson. Yeah, that's a
2: good point.
1: (laughs) That's a, uh, actually
0: another question that I, that I had written down was, um, what was going on with Charles Manson with, with, I'm, I'm not too familiar with that. Can you, I've heard of it. I just don't, I haven't dove into it. Can you explain a little bit on that? Shed some light?
1: Uh, yeah, it kind of was the end of the sixties in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, you know, Charles Manson was a kid, you know, born in the, uh, I think the South, like, you know, kind of the Northern you know, South. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it just was a juvenile delinquent, just, you know, bounced around from, you know, detention center to detention center. Um, and if, you know, there's, you know, some uh, evidence to suggest, you know, that he was part of that MK Ultra
0: MKUltra yeah, uh, right. study
1: where you know, people were you know, given psychedelics without their knowledge.
0: That's not confirmed, but- though. There's just speculation on that.
1: You know, I haven't, you know, seen the reports. Okay. You know, Joe, you know, last week when, you know, Joe and I met, he was discussing that. But it isn't, you know, something that I know, you know, with any, you know, with any certainty. But in any event, he spent a lot of time in prison, in jail, you know, in detention centers. Um, and, uh, he ended up, um, in Southern California, Northern California, and, uh, just started collecting these, uh, you know, hangers on, um, started a family, you know, uh, you know, quote unquote family, yeah. uh, and, you know, um, they took a lot of LSD, like a lot of LSD all of the time. Um, they, yeah. you know, they lived in the middle of nowhere. They stole, uh, they murdered, they did all kinds of horrible things. Um, you know, so... The, you know, clincher, you know, was uh, um, his followers, you know, murdering uh, um, an actress, you know, the wife um, of Roman Polanski and a a number um, of her friends. And then a few days later, there were some more murders. Yeah, you know, so, uh, you know, these were kids, young kids uh, who whose, you know, personalities were not very well mm. formed, you know, but who had, you know, criminal, you know, sociopathic tendencies. And, mm, right. you know, Manson had this, you know, theory that there'd be mm. a, um, a race war and that, you know, they would go underground, like underground, underground, like under the oh, ground uh, in yeah. you know, Death Valley for a certain mm. number of years. And, you know, then they would emerge. And, uh, you know, the race war would have ended in the blacks winning and, you know, then, you know, they would emerge from this hole in the ground and then, uh, you know, kind of be the, you know, the royalty to, you know, uh, you know, to run the new kingdom. Oh my God. Yeah. And, uh, you know, these murders had to be, well, you know, the race war was going to begin with these murders. Um, you know, so, you know, it was this really weird worldview, obviously, but, you know, these were, were kids who had no place to go. They were kind of felt, you know, hard done by you know, society. And they were just, uh you know, kind of molded within the framework of a lot of LSD in this, uh, well, and this you know, very strange philosophy.
0: Did they have these tendencies before all the acid?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think they would have. Yeah, they wouldn't have been able to have just gone from you know, zero to 180, you know, those were already, uh, you know, latent, I guess, you know, tendencies.
0: So what would, you can't specifically blame LSD for that, right?
1: No, no. But you're, not. you know, it points to the fact that LSD is not, you know, necessarily good or bad. It just depends on how it's used, which is the, you know, set and setting issues.
0: Oh, geez, geez. Yeah, that's kind of bizarre. I I was wondering if they ever did have they have ever done um, like for example, taking a World War II concentrate concentration camp and letting them take DMT or administering it to them or ayahuasca and see what would happen, just in like a a trial circumstance, you know, just to see what happens, like testing it on someone with a a pretty terrible. Um, Back life, I suppose.
1: Uh, has that ever been done? Besides, you mean concentration camp survivors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a psychiatrist in the Netherlands, uh, John uh, Bastians, uh, who treated a lot of concentration camp survivors with LSD psychotherapy. Um, and uh, you yeah, know, there's a book by one of his patients. Uh, and it's a really amazing book. Um, if you can hold on, let me look at my database. Please, yeah. Uh, yeah. A called, it's so called, I think it's a Yiddish term or a Hebrew term. Uh, so the name doesn't come to mind immediately. Right. Yeah, and it was quite helpful. Well, you know, psychedelics, if you use you know properly, can be real helpful for post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, any Holocaust survivors going to, be suffering from bad PTSD. Yeah,
0: that's, um, that's so fascinating to me. Um, it just feels like when we're talking about these, these drugs, and there's a, a skew of them, I mean, how come you didn't mention marijuana within your book? Was there a reason behind that? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, you could take big doses of marijuana, and they're quite psychedelic. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, uh, a friend up in Boulder, uh, you know, Daniel McQueen has been running these you know psychedelic you know, cannabis you know circles for years, um, and he wrote a book that just came out, psychedelic cannabis. Um, yeah, you know, but the uh, it, you know it it just didn't quite you know fit in with you know the psychedelic handbook uh you know motif um i have a you know, footnote you know, saying you know that even though you can smoke marijuana and experience uh you know psychedelic effects you know the chemistry is completely different the you know, brain okay. function changes are completely different um yeah it just would have been a little far afield
0: i got you yeah uh, the book's great i mean doesn't i don't think it takes anything away from it um
1: and you know, there are plenty of books on marijuana.
0: For sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Is there, um, is there DMT always circulating in us in, in some way or another? I believe there's like 150 plants that have DMT in them, and those are the ones that we know of. But I'm just wondering if, if there's an interaction within humans and plants on a, a daily basis that we might not know about. Like, it could be... Is it altering our consciousness in any kind of way?
1: Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, first, let me tell you, um, I found the book. Um, about, um, awesome. The Bastions, uh, you know, the patient from the camps who did LSD therapy. Uh, the book is called Shiviti, S-H-I-V-I-T-T-I, colon, A Vision, um, and uh, the last name of the author is Denuer, D-E-N-U-R. Perfect. D-E-N-U-R. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. It was an inspiring book, actually. Yeah. Um, but also, as you might guess, quite painful. I um, definitely imagine. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, DMT is everywhere. That's the name of one of you know, Shulgin's uh, 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 chapters in uh, you know, t Call. You know, DMT is everywhere. Yeah, it's in a lot of plants. It's in every mammal that it's been, you know, looked for. Uh, it's in humans. Um, and a few years back, uh, the group at Ann Arbor uh, University of Michigan in 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 Ann Arbor um, you know, published a uh, a paper describing synthesis of DMT in rodent brain, um, and the concentrations are quite high you know, comparable to those found in, uh, you know, for serotonin, for dopamine. Uh, and the concentrations increase in the dying rodent brain, especially in the visual cortex. You know, so it you may be that, you know, there's a DMT, uh, you know, neurotransmitter system. You know, also DMT, uh, in experimental animals anyway, you know, reduces stroke size, experimental stroke, and it speeds functional recovery from stroke. Uh, it also, um, uh, stimulates, you know, neurogenesis and, uh, you know, neuroplasticity, you know, so, you know, things are, you know, gradually coming into focus regarding the, you know, mechanism of your know, synthesis of DMT in you know, the mammalian brain and also, uh, it's, you know, functions, uh, you know but yeah i mean that's a good question you know if there is a dmt uh you know neurotransmitter system uh then you know what is it responsible for
0: yes and i'm just trying to wrap my head around that because if you've seen the movie the matrix where it's like they're living in this world that's completely fake so if you take out the say you hypothetically take out the plants i understand we would die but just for this hypothetical situation we take out all the plants that are you know ha- that have DMT in them what would the world look like around us would it be something completely different like maybe a little bit more dull black and white i don't know just
2: or no world at all
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah or no it, yeah it it gets pretty spooky at that point uh yeah, yeah, well, um, you know, the hallmark of you know, the DMT experience is the you know, feeling that this is more real than real. You know, so, yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, it, it is tempting to speculate that the role of endogenous DMT, and, you know, in the normal state is uh, involved in maintaining our uh, you know, sense of reality. Um, yeah. <laughs> there are studying animals now that, you know, don't make the enzyme that's re- uh, required for, you know, synthesis of DMT, you know, so it you know, could be that it's possible, you know, to breed animals that don't produce any DMT um, in which case, uh, you know, it'll be very interesting to look at them. Um, you know, I suppose i um, at some point, you could even speculate that you know DMT is the endo matrix. I mean, it's what's you know, maintaining this oh, wow. version of reality. Jesus um, you Lord. know, but you know that'd be hard to test. Uh, you know, like you, know, how could you prove it or a reality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. How could you? <laughs> uh, and yeah, second of all, I don't know if you would do anything different. Uh, you know, there's still a yeah. cause and effect. Uh, you know, if you're angry, you'll stub your toe in this world or that world. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's fun to think about. uh, And I think it's important to to do studies to kind of, you know, see what's going on. Uh, You know, but you have to keep the speculation. Well, I guess you can speculate all you want, but, um, (laughs) uh, you know, it's important, you know, to distinguish between speculation and
2: uh, data. Oh, that's amazing. Is there... I guess you know we're going more into speculative territory Um, is there any correlation between let's say DMT and kind of anecdotal reports of like approximating reality like does it again I'm sure this is all just anecdotal reporting from whomever takes it Um, but whenever someone takes DMT and they report whatever it is that they report. From your experience of what you've heard, does it really sound like a reality breaking apart? Does it sound like an altered reality? Like what is this DMT experience like for, let's say just the everyday man, everyday woman?
1: Uh, It's a different reality. Okay. Yeah. um, It's composed of light. Um, Yeah. And uh, things are much more intense, Uh, you know, visual imagery, uh, impactful. There's this you know, sense of impact uh, that what you're witnessing and what's going on all around you uh, is completely replaced ongoing reality, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's completely different and uh, it's completely compelling.
0: Have you ever tried salvia before?
1: Uh, one time. Okay. Yeah, I've tried it twice, and
0: it, when I smoked it. There were already three people that had smoked it before me. And when I exhaled, immediately I was transported into a world that I could only see the people that had smoked it. I couldn't see anyone else that had not inhaled it yet.
1: What the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's completely weird. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it was not my cup of tea either. Uh, yeah, definitely not. Yeah. yeah, uh, you know, Some people you know, really like salvia. Um, (laughs) yeah. And, you know, I'm not, yeah, yeah. You know, so I guess to each his own, but, you know, um, you know, lots of people, you know, myself included and yourself included. Yeah. It's dysphoric. It's very unpleasant. Definitely.
0: Yeah. When we take these drugs, is it a different frequency maybe that we're dialing into? Think of like a radio that you're tuning into when I did one of these times I did LSD on uh in, in Florida, on the beach, when we were starting to come down a little bit, we went out to go get tacos outdoors and right across from this taco place was a bar and all these people were just completely hammered. And I remember so vividly that me and my friend were, were sitting down at this picnic table and we were having this conversation. We're, we're completely In touch with each other because we're on the same frequency. And this guy from across the street just yells out, fuck this shit, just being like a complete dickhead, right? Just hammered. And I like something came over me. I'm like, I never want to do that again. I never want to touch alcohol again. That is such a bad frequency to be on. Like I felt the energy. I felt I just wanted nothing to do with that. And I was just looking my friend in the face, like, Just pale white. Like, what was that? Something just came into our world that was so negative. So it seems like there's all these frequencies that these drugs help us tap into.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, and you know, there are uh, you know global effects on the brain of drugs. You know, the field, you know, the electrical and magnetic field around the brain changes in response Mm. to drugs or meditation or anything uh, yeah you know so it makes you know, sense you know that your brain would resonate with certain you know drugs in a different manner. Um, and you know the activity yeah. of the brain I suppose you know would reflect uh, the uh, quality of the field of the drug you know like alcohol yeah it's aggressive yeah um, yeah or it has a, an aggressive aspect which is loud wow. know, fairly dominant. As as of, you know, as as composed as opposed to most people's experiences, anyway, on marijuana. Yeah, I just uh, don't
0: understand how alcohol is so legal like that and has been in comparison to some of these other drugs that I've taken. It makes no sense because when when I used to drink, I used to be a, a fucking maniac. I used to be crazy.
1: Well, and- I think it has to do with the frequency of our you know civilization. Uh, that you know people drink yeah, oh, yeah. so much yeah. yeah um yeah well you know i think you know there are external you know forces of evil out there just like there are external forces for good and i think you know some of the external you know forces for evil channel thems- themselves through alcohol
0: right like the uh, the Manting case as well with lsd maybe that just enhanced who he was and
1: yeah, yeah. You 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 provide a receptacle, uh, like a you know, proper receptacle, and it gets you know, filled up with you know, whatever it's you know, fitted for.
0: Just re- keep recharging it like a Tesla, right? Just plug that sucker in.
1: I, I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <really? laughs>
0: Doctor Rick does not drive a Tesla. <laughs> no,
1: I have a nineteen-year-old Tundra. Oh,
2: amazing! Wow. Amazing.
1: It it runs great. I keep it, you know, like you know, tip-top condition, but still, yeah. It's, it's no Tesla. Good for you. I like hearing that. That's good.
0: I also heard that you um have a flip phone as well,
1: right? Uh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was an amusing exchange between me you know, uh with with me and Joe last week. Um, you know, my phone started ringing. Well, uh, I called somebody. I uh, inadvertently uh, like a, a pocket call. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, people were wondering what that was and I took out my phone and, you know, kind of got a, Oh my God, a good laugh. <laughs>
0: That's
1: pretty good. <laughs>
0: um, getting back to it with this, this DMT is, is it exhausted? I don't know the correct word to use. I, I assume maybe exhausted or, or deployed within your brain when you die like
1: do we know that now um uh we're starting to learn about the regulation of uh, you know dmt synthesis yeah that, that study from ann arbor uh in 2019 uh you know demonstrated that levels in brain of dmt uh increase quite robustly um in the dying rodent brain and uh, especially in the visual cortex. In the visual, you know, cortex. so it oh, makes you, you know, wonder if uh, you know, some of the visual characteristics of the near-death state may be mediated yes. by increased DMT release.
0: That's exactly what I wrote down. I was, I was so curious. Like near-death experiences, you hear all these things. Like I saw relatives. I saw bright lights. You know, perhaps it's DMT release preparing you for death, or whatever the next section is next uh, phase of life and i'm kind of curious where do you stand on life after death dr
1: rick uh yeah well the whole thing about or you know, the whole uh, you know question about you know what is dmt doing you know during the dying process um yeah yeah if you recall uh, i you know, mentioned that you know dmt improves uh well it um reduces uh the size of experimental stroke at least um it also uh you know, helps neurons live longer in conditions of low oxygen you know so it uh it you know, could be you know that as your brain well um, as you're dying and your you brain is struggling to survive you know that dmt is released uh in order to enhance the survival of brain tissue but but still, you have to wonder, you know, why it has got such profound you know, psychological effects. You know, why couldn't it just be some chemical release with, you know, without any uh, uh, you know, psychological properties like aspirin or something. I had uh, a a median
0: on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him this question: If the way you die changes the outcome of your outlife, it sounds crazy, but since talking to you. I kind of feel that, that that question holds some water because if you're on your deathbed or you get shot and you're dying slowly, DMT can re- release, perhaps, you know, theoretically. But if you're blowing up in an airplane, there, you, don't, you don't get that. <laughs> There's no way.
1: No, no. You know, somebody once, uh, you know, wondered if the creation of, uh, you know, ghosts occurs by that manner, you know, because you're not allowed to kind of, you know, transition. Whoa, that's a good. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. It was a young student. Uh, yeah, you know, one of these young genius students who asks these great questions. So yeah, wonderful.
0: Okay. <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie Enter the Void? I did. Okay.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: good yeah, I, mean, I mean, talk about creepy.
0: That changed my life. I was I was really scared after watching that, just because I had all these new thoughts coming into into my mind what, what was your initial thought on that
1: well i mean can you imagine you're in a cd japanese nightclub stoned on dmt in the bathroom no. and somebody shoots you through yeah. the door
2: <laughs> hell no. <laughs>
1: no yeah yeah i kind of tuned out after the shooting Yeah, uh, oh, like, i mean man. i stayed for the movie but i was just so you know shaken up by the <laughs> you know, the, you know, the pretext, uh, yeah. or, you know, the premise. Uh, sure. Yeah, um, you know, it's a lot slower than a DMT experience. It's, you know, wasn't as you know visual, but uh, yeah, it, you know, does address issues of afterlife and what happens, uh, you know, depending on the, the manner of your death. Um, yeah. You know, I think we just don't know. I mean, you know, nobody's come back from the dead as far as we know. <laughs> so, you know, whether or not um, there's life after death, I, I, I don't think it's, yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, something we really can't, uh, you know, nail down. Uh, you know, as I think that we are alive now, this seems like the only life we've got. So I think, you know, this incumbent to make the most of you know, this life. Yeah, you know, that's the you know that's the difference you know let's say between you know Christianity and you know Judaism, you know you know there's no mention of the afterlife in in the Torah in in the Hebrew Bible, like um like you know zero, uh it, it's it's all you know how to live your life you know here and now, um and yeah. if you do good chances are you'll receive good if you do bad chances are you'll receive bad, you know so it's quite you know day to day, as opposed to being concerned with salvation or what happens after you die
0: i actually think uh psychedelics helps me with that coming back to that just be just you know living just while you're here do what you can i we can't control what happens when we die there's no way and the fact that all of us were kind of in that void state before we were born i mean there there's no feeling emotion or anything to that so i mean why be worried i suppose that's kind of where my mind is at when speaking
1: on death? Um, Yeah, yeah. I think it's hard to know. Uh, You you know, some of, well, well, so I'm a psychiatrist and I spent a lot of time seeing patients. And, um, you you know, sometimes, you know, people would come in suicidal and they'd say, um, well, if I kill myself, I'll be free and I won't be suffering anymore. (laughs) And I would say, you know, don't be so sure. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing to say you're right. Wow. <laughs> oh
2: man, yep, my uh someone that I knew uh they used to tell me that the very last, I mean, not that they would actually know this, they used to say that the very last seconds of life are absolute hell or absolute heaven and that everything that we do right now is for that last tiny bit of time that we have in life. Um and you know, it kind of made me think uh, could be it. Maybe just, we just have one second of hell, one second of, of heaven. And, uh, you know, that, that is the quote unquote, that's the DMT being released.
1: Yeah. I think we need to, uh, well, yeah. If, if you keep your mind kind of concentrated on, you know, this could be my last moment. Uh, I I mean, you wouldn't want to be, I'm obsessed, but you would want to be, you know, in a good mood, you'd want to be you know, feeling like you were being helpful. Uh, yeah, you, you want you wouldn't want to be complaining. You know, so all the things you know that you don't want to be your last, you know, perception of uh, you should avoid.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, and and you know, kind of tying into religion, uh, what, what's the the connection with um, that your flip DMT phone? and oh, that, I think that is the flip phone.
1: Yeah, that's my flip phone. I just. <laughs> <heard it outside. laughs> It strikes again. I love it. <laughs> it strikes again. Yeah, I can't do much about. You know, I'm, yeah. who'd you call this time? N- no, it's uh, it was somebody calling me actually. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, well, so what's
2: what's the connection with between DMT and and religion?
1: The difference between DMT and what?
2: Oh, sorry. The uh, the connection between DMT and and religion.
1: Oh. Yeah, well, so that's, you know, the topic of my 2014 book, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of went back to the drawing board after my DMT work was finished. Um, I was expecting uh, a Zen Buddhist version of spiritual experience. Yeah. Uh, You know, Kensho, Enlightenment, Satori, you know, with no content at all. You know, the abolition of uh, the sense of self, uh, you know, time and space, those kinds of things. Yeah, you know, but instead it was you know the DMT effect. I mean, it was you know full of content, you know, very busy, with which you interact, you know, personally, you know. So, you know, excuse me. Yeah, you know, the spiritual you know questions around DMT intrigued me, and that was one of my ulterior motives in you know doing the study in the first place. You know, was you know, to determine if pharmacologically, uh, you know, DMT was spiritual, uh, or if it was only psychedelic, it was just mind manifesting, just working on the personality. Um, You know, so it turned out to be the case that it just worked on the personality. And, uh, you know, the mystical unitive kind of white light all as one experience only happened in one of my volunteers. And uh, everybody else's experiences were quite interactive, you know, they work you know, quite relational. You know, so you know that kind of you know uh, you know militated against a uh, you know, Zen view anyway of uh, spirituality and the DMT effect. Uh, so um, I started you know reading the Hebrew Bible. I'm Jewish and was yeah you know looking for an alternative perspective. Yeah, and uh, the descriptions anyway of the DMT state and full blown you know, prophetic experience are quite. Is similar. There's visions and there's voices and extreme feelings and the sense of reality. Uh, so I started, you know, digging into descriptions of prophetic experience in the Bible, which could be any altered state. It isn't only foretelling or predicting. It, you know, it could be inspiration or courage or speaking to God or God's angels. Um, and you make a comparison uh, between the DMT effect and the prophetic state. And phenomenologically, you know, they were very close to each other. If you read chapter one of Ezekiel, it's completely psychedelic. There's, there's you know, wings and eyes on the wings, and there's fire and there's blue and there's ice and there's flying through space. Yeah, it's you know quite DMT like. You know, but you the difference. You know, but yeah, clearly, you know, the DMT state hasn't had the same kind of impact as the message of hebrew bible prophecy so yeah uh you know the you know the difference was the information content you know the phenomenology the visions and and the voices were quite similar you know but the message uh was quite distinct you know one is enduring it's been around for three thousand four thousand years you you know the other is kind of ephemeral uh you know i'm at least at this point um Yeah. You know, so I, I started to, uh, you know, read some of the, you know, uh, know, the medieval philosophers understanding of religious experience Mm -hmm. and uh, it kind of, you know, came upon Aristotle's uh, notion of, you know, the imagination, you know, which is where anything perceptible takes place in the mind and the intellect. Um, You know, the intellect is abstracting as opposed to perceptual. You know, you know, so I, put together an idea that you know, psychedelics stimulate the imagination. They stimulate the visions and the voices, you, you know, but it still is up to us, our intellect, our, our education, our training uh, to extract, you know, to extract, you know, valuable um, information. Um, you know, so you could either stimulate, uh, you know, DMT from above, which would be prophetic. It would be information you know, coming from some divine realm. Uh, or you can stimulate uh, you know DMT in the brain you know, from below by sm- smoking it or otherwise ingesting it in which case it's you know much more likely that uh you're dealing with your own stuff as opposed you know to divinely inspired material
2: right right so it's like um it's like making concepts tangible
1: um making concepts tangible yeah yeah, you are making concepts perceptible, and you, then you need to extract the concepts. Okay,
2: okay. Wow, that I mean, that just blows my mind. Um, you know, way back when, you know, dreams used to be considered uh, very real, and so people would follow uh, or, or actually take heed to what their dreams would say. Uh, whereas nowadays, um, people, you know, they have a dream, but maybe they don't even dream. Uh, I know a lot of folks that don't really remember what they dream. Um, I mean, there, there has to be a really big tie in between, uh, you know, DMT as a whole and, and, you know, I guess these prophetic visions, prophetic perceptions. It's the cousin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. This is kind of going a little bit tangential, but, uh, you know, I I had a DMT trip, uh, only one time in my life. Uh, it was a little bit, uh, a little bit scary. Um, I'll be the the first to admit that. And so that's why I'm not really (laughs) doing it again, but, um, fractals seem to be a really big theme in that trip. And and of course, fractals seem to be a theme in probably every other trip I've had. Um, what is, what are fractals? Why, why do they show up?
1: Uh, I think, you know, they relate to the structure of the brain. Uh, you know, the circuitry and the dendritic, you know, web, um, you know, there is a German psychiatrist, Kluver, who studied mescaline in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and, uh, you know, Kluver um, established the existence of what he called form constants on mescaline. Uh, and, you know, they were quite, you know, fractal-like as well. Um, and if you look at ayahuasca art, it's quite uh, you know, fractalized, too. Yeah, I think it's just a you know function of the brain, um, you know. But if you get you know beyond you know the fractals, as it were, you know, then I think this is where things you know, get interesting. If you can you <laughs> kind of go th- you know through the fractals or the you know, fractals or less That's uh, into recognizable images with which you can interact, I think you can take things to another level. Wow!
0: Never again, Ali? Huh?
2: Yeah, well, you know, maybe, maybe one day, um, I, I, just, it was a little bit too extreme. Uh, and, and one of the things, well, I guess one of the themes that, uh, popped up was kind of my change in perception of time. Um, I guess based off of, uh, your experience, what have been those, uh, changes in the perception of time? Uh, how long were they? And, uh, is there kind of like a, a constant change for everyone or is this, just with a few folks,
1: uh, I think that you know, most people uh, you know, feel you know, that a lot more uh, time has passed than it actually has, and uh, that's because I think of the sheer concentration of information uh, and uh, experience which takes place in that short amount of time. Um, you know, so usually, you know, there's you know, compression of time like that. You know, some people think it goes on a lot longer than than it does, but uh, you know, usually uh, when you know, people would come out of the big dose effect, they'd say, "You know, how much time passed?" And I'd say fifteen minutes or you know, twenty or uh, you know twenty minutes, and they'd blow oh, their mind again. You know, they would be completely amazed. Yeah, you know, they would think at least an hour, maybe two, had passed. Uh, wow! Yeah. Yeah,
2: that's that's amazing. Um, and, and I, I, I feel as if uh, it, it might be stronger with DMT versus other drugs, or or is it, or is this kind of like change in time perception the same with with all psychedelics?
0: My brother ate an edible, like too much of an edible, and started freaking <laughs> out about time. Like he's like, it's only been seven minutes. Oh my god, it feels like it's been a day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. Well. Y- I think in the case um, of you know the short acting tryptamines you know the smokable ones uh, DMT 5 methoxy um, you know the transition is you know so quick and in, I'm um, into the altered state and uh, there's you know just this huge pressure of you know download of information um, it you know could be more extreme with you know DMT and other smokable tryptamines you know um, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, there were some studies of perception of time um, on LSD. You know, these were you know, papers you know, from the 50s and the 60s. Um, and I don't remember, you know, what they showed. You know, there were effects, um, you know, but these were, and, and I think there actually, you know, may be some more recent studies, uh, you know, regarding time perception and, you uh, you know, psychedelics. You know, that wouldn't be hard to track down.
2: Uh sure Google Scholar. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely, definitely. Um, Jay, you said your brother had experienced kind of this uh prolonged trip on cannabis. Yeah, he was freaking the fuck out. Oh, uh, that's so he
0: that's so terrible. what happened this is his first time eating an edible. He he ate I think it was ten milligrams, and thirty minutes go by, he's like not really feeling anything, you know, the classic case. And he went off upstairs and grabbed another one and ate it. And guess what? Like almost immediately after that, they started hitting. He started freaking out. And, yeah, it was – he went out of his way to, like, keep telling me. He's like, why is time feeling so slow right now? Like how has it only been seven minutes? Like it feels like it's been a day like really freaking out. <laughs> Jeez.
2: Uh, I mean, it sounds like a bad trip, but Dr. Strassman, have you, have you had a bad trip? Uh, you, you don't sound like it. I'm just going to say that first off.
1: Oh no, I, I've had plenty. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like I stopped, you know, doing all psychedelics for 12 years after a really bad uh, experience. Which, uh... Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I was uh, 20 or 21. Yeah. And I was with some friends and, I just got like super paranoid. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And it, if it weren't for my good friend that I bumped into, uh, you know, later in the day, I don't know you know, what would have happened. So yeah, I, uh, I uh, stopped Did using you... any psychedelics for Did you take weeks. a
0: higher dose that time or was it just?
1: Uh, no, it was, it was a bad, you know, set in setting.
0: Yep. Okay. Get it. Yeah. I, it was actually a, uh... A question that I want to ask you as well is: have you had any groundbreaking experiences? Uh, so straying away from the, the negativity, but any groundbreaking, you know, like, you hear these stories about like Steve Jobs, like he used to take psychedelics and super successful. So I'm just kind of curious, like, would you still have been Dr. Rick without it? Or would you be fire stand, fireworks? Oh, yeah,
1: I just have no idea. Um, right. How could yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, how could I even answer that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, I would have just been a different person. Yeah, you, you know, but you know, the experiences themselves, the ones that were um, informative well, you know, that first time I, I smoked cannabis, I uh, was quite psychedelic. There were clouds coming out of my speakers and my friend and I were you know, sitting on a carpet and the floor dissolved out from under us and we right. were flying around town, you know, sharing all the <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, that was impressive. Is,
0: um, is the first one usually the best one since, like, is there a flood of dopamine or, like, since it hasn't been accessed like that before, opposed to if you keep using?
1: Uh, there's probably a number of things. You know, one would be that you're more familiar with the experience uh, as time goes on. The first time is completely new.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, you, you know, the brain regulatory adaptations, it would depend on the drug. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, psychedelics, uh, you know, by, um, what, what do I want to say? Well, yeah, uh, you know, once you, um, you know, once you metabolize any of the classical psychedelics, they're you know, pretty much gone from your system and there's no evidence uh, in the brain uh, of any structural changes. Um, you know, that's not the case with MDMA. I mean, MDMA, you have to be very, you know, very, very careful with, Yeah, because it can damage your neurons.
0: Yeah, there used to be the uh, that scare tactic you'd always see on the news, like if you take ecstasy, it burns a hole in your brain. And I, I think (laughs) they were actually showing images with a a hole in a brain, but it was a a false image.
1: Uh, I wouldn't be surprised.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nothing surprises us anymore. Uh, Ali, did you? Before we started recording, you had mentioned something about quantum physics, I believe, or something that ties oh, in. Yeah.
2: Oh the, uh, well, uh, yeah, well,
0: yeah, very
2: speculative territory, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I guess this really ties back into what we were talking about earlier, uh, where currently they're looking to see kind of the the quote unquote quantum physical interaction between the brain and um, and I guess maybe objective reality. And I think you had alluded to this earlier, uh, Dr. Strassman, where um, the the brain was interacting uh, or or rather there would be changes in electromagnetic waves around the brain um, after any any experience or after uh, certain drugs are taken. Uh, Can you expound a little bit upon
1: that? Uh, well, I mean, you take drugs or you're in any other state, you know, normal or abnormal, you know, there's, uh, you know, the electroencephalogram, uh, or the EEG, uh, you, um, you place electrodes on, on the scalp and, you, and you can record the electrical um, activity coming from the surface of the brain. Yeah. And, and, you know, that creates a field, you know, like each of the localized areas, uh, yeah. And, you know, there's a uh, you know, magnetic activity within the brain. There's a thing called a MEG, M-E-G, uh, you know, uh, w- which uh, you know, quantifies the you know, magnetic fields or um, you know, the magnetic activity um, in the brain. Yeah. You know, so, you know, there's localized stuff which contributes to the field. Uh, so I think that is kind of how it works. So
2: I guess what I've read is that you know with these megs and uh ecgs i believe uh, uh, there is this question of is the brain uh interacting with reality or is reality interacting with the brain um i mean what, what's the uh, what is the consensus on that currently <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> about the consensus uh well i would say there's one camp which feels strongly in one direction (laughs) and there's another that feels just as strongly about the other. Um, yeah, you know, those are one of those big questions that's going to take a long time to figure out and needs to be, uh, you know, figure it out experimentally. Uh, Um, you need to do the studies.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess we're just, we're way in that infantile stage where we don't really understand the brain. Um, um, we don't understand reality or we don't really understand what objective reality is. Uh, what is objective reality to you?
1: Objective reality. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just ongoing experience. Uh, so I'm in my office looking at my screen and I'm you know, sitting in my chair. Uh, objective reality. Yeah. I mean, am thinking about, uh, you know, lunch, stuff like that, you know, that's objective <laughs> reality. Uh, so yeah, you know, ongoing experience, I suppose.
2: Okay, I mean, like, are are those thoughts themselves um, a part of that objective reality, or are they, you mm-hmm. know, are they predicting yeah. the the future, are they looking at alternate alternative realities?
1: Um, I think it's more mundane. Okay. Yeah, you know, like I, I'm like, I'm kind of, kind of hungry, but not quite. Yeah, so. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I suppose it's 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 an observation. If I spoke about the observation, or if I wrote yeah. it down, it would be objective. Uh, but but right. still, y- you can measure subjective experience. I mean, you sure. know, that's what uh, you know. Questionnaires do, you know, rating scales.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, Jay, d- you also had brought up uh, your experience on acid when you, you went to Florida. Yeah. Um I mean, did you have any uh, kind of profound experience in in the form of death or or was it?
0: There was this moment that sticks out to me when we were, uh, so me and my friend, we were walking on this path and it was nighttime. So we couldn't really see too much. Like the lights were starting to go away on this path that we were walking at. So we were walking, the lights were on, and then we went deeper into this path and there were no lights. And I was, I was actually kind of terrified to, to step in there, but we did it and we had no idea where were we, we were going. And about probably like five minutes later of just aimlessly walking, we saw another light. We had no idea where we were and we started walking toward it and boom, we were in the parking lot. So then like all these connections were made in my head. I'm like, sometimes you may not know where your path is going to take you, but if if you have a good head on your shoulders or or, or you're with a friend or something like that, everything will work out in the end. Like, I, I don't know, something happened, but I brought the experience back with me and always think about that. Like no matter what's going to happen, like everything will work out. Everything will work out.
2: That's
1: well. Well, do you think that's true? I do. I do. I think it's true for sure.
2: Huh?
1: That everything will work out,
0: like you know, for the better or for the worse. For me personally, everything has worked out for the better. Even in some turbulent times, it always seems to get better, and I'm always—I always seem to be on the right track.
1: I see. Well, it's it's you know, kind of like acceptance.
0: Yes. Oh yeah, definitely. Open open arms acceptance to this. Yeah, I embrace even the bad things that happen because on the other side of this, it's going to teach me something and I'm going to become a better person from it.
1: Well, you know, do you think that those ideas were in your mind already and the LSD just made them more certain for you? That's a very good question. I, I,
0: I often try to think about that, but potentially. But the LSD trip made it so much more apparent, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it helps clarify things that are already there that are you know more or less conscious or they could even be unconscious, you know, but they're still there. It was so yeah.
0: wild because the, the path got so dark and I remember being so scared and we had no idea where we were at. And then all of a sudden, after we kept walking, we ended up in the parking lot right next to our car. It was so bizarre.
1: Uh, well, yeah, it's amazing. More, you know, troubles don't you know, happen to people tripping <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I, I think we're going to be you know hearing and reading more about those troubles once there's increased accessibility.
0: Oh man. In a perfect world, where do you see like being able to take LSD or, or, Mushrooms, like, is it would it be in a clinical setting? Do you think that we should be able to sell them at a store for just the average person, or should they all be in a clinical setting? It's very powerful. Um, I don't
1: yeah, you know, Joe and I were talking about this at some length last week. Um, you know, I think there needs to be considerations of public health, definitely. Um, and that's the role of the government you know so i don't think it should be completely a free-for-all now, no you trust the
0: government though i mean they like the opioid ep- epidemic right like they that was
1: that was such an event like i was even involved in that for a little bit so yeah bad. i mean the response to the opiate thing was pretty pretty bad but i, I suppose you know if you're looking at liquor stores you know those are you know government regulated although i mean god only knows you know how effective they are in you know really regulating alcohol
0: it just seems like a money grab at a certain point it just seems like do what we can to make as much money and then we'll pay the little fine that we have to when some shit goes haywire
1: uh you haywire. know a few years ago i was in on a meeting uh that a bunch of us were thinking about Starting a, a psychedelic church, and it would be a, above board, and we get all of, of the you know federal and state regulations taken care of. And Ralph Messner was was in on that meeting, and he said, "Forget it. Just keep it underground. Uh, the more people that shouldn't be tripping, the more problems there are going to be. If you keep it underground, there's you know checks and balances that have you know, been in effect you know forever." Um, How do you avoid you know, making it culty? Uh, if it's underground,
0: yeah, especially if it's underground. Yeah, I would say
1: Well, you a peer review. Uh, you need okay. to have, you know, feedback from people that are both in your group and outside of the group. Yeah. Is
0: this, is this something that's actually you're considering still?
1: Uh, no, no. It, the discussion really went nowhere. It was about because
0: it's underground ago. and you can't speak to us about it. I got it.
1: Well, you know, there's, well, well, there's been an underground in, you know, psychedelics, you know, from, you know, from day one. Yeah. I think, you know, what we're seeing now is they're being, you know, co-modified by, you know, corporations and even Pied Pipers who are just, you know, foisting a philosophy on the public, you know, for their own uh uh yeah, position um yeah you know so they're you know much more public now you know but even after the, these drugs were illegalized in 1970 you know the use of you know psychedelics you know continued to be you know, pretty much the same as before the case of them you know, being prohibited uh, um you know so there's always going to be people tripping um yeah, but you know, if it's going to be occurring, you know, on you know the up and up in the public domain, you know, what's the best you know setting? Well, I mean, it could be clinics, or it could be centers where you people can trip who want to trip for any number of reasons, for you know recreation, for pleasure, for inspiration, for creativity, you know, you know, for religious purposes uh, you know, psychotherapeutic ones. Um, you know, but, but still there will be a lot of, uh, you know, tripping that, you know, goes on um, outside of any organized structure. Um, you know, because yeah. one of the things about psychedelics is they, at least ostensibly, uh, you know, they kind of shift structure and the more you stru- the more structure that you, you know, place around them, uh, there's going to be an equally prevailing, you know, counterforce to keep that out of the mainstream. Of course,
0: yeah, yeah. It's a shame that um, I, I try to. I have a hard time telling some friends that I've been microdosing because it's just it's still with some people is in such a bad light. Like if you tell them that you're microdosing or, or whatever, I'm taking the the point five that like I'm a, I'm a tripper and. I don't have a grasp on reality and, you know, it it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, when I microdose, I feel so much better. I don't know if, actually, I did want to ask this. Does, um, from your research, does psilocybin have an effect on
1: inflammation? Yeah. The classical compounds seem to be anti-inflammatory and some of uh, the phenethylamines too. Uh, you know, there's a compound out there, which is called DOI. Um, and, uh, it's incredibly potent anti-inflammatory.
0: That's crazy because I, okay, I'm, I'm athletic still. Um, I rolled my ankle about five years ago and it's been, it swells up every single time I use it. I should probably get surgery on it. I haven't yet because it'll put me out for too long. But last week I played hockey and then I had softball in the same week and I have been microdosing. The inflammation was not there. I'm not even kidding. It was not there. I can walk on my ankle. There was mobility. It was insane. So I started looking up. I'm like, does psilocybin help with inflammation? Because that was the only thing that I changed to my diet was adding that. Everything else remained the same. And I noticed a huge benefit in that. Like The inflammation was nearly gone.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's impressive. Yes. (laughs) I agree.
0: I agree. And uh, alcohol makes it worse, of course. So I, I'm just, I'm indifferent about alcohol if you can't tell.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't like drinking. I've got a you know, six pack that I bought a year ago and I've got like one left.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Good for you. Have beer a quarter. That's exactly what I do. It's
1: about yeah. a beer a quarter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well, wonderful. Ali, do you have any more questions? I'm about spent. Uh, Rick, thank
2: you. Oh no, that was, that was fantastic. That was fantastic.
0: Beautiful. Rick, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it so much. Um, I don't know if you're on social media. Do you have any social media platforms?
1: Uh, yeah, I have a website, com, and you can order books through my website. I will ins- inscribe them and uh, sign them. Um, and I have a you know, Facebook page. Oh, okay. And- yeah. Well, you know, I have, you know, two actually, one's private, one's public. So
0: Oh, Okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, I've never really been able to distinguish between the two, except I can have more followers on the public page or more more friends, I guess. Um, Yeah. You know, so, you know, if you want to follow me, you know, go to my public page.
0: Yeah, I'll do that. And the listeners as well, um, keep updates. Uh, the Psychedelic Handbook is out now. It came out, what was it, the 9th of August?
1: Yeah, it, it you know, came out on the 9th. Uh, you know, sales have been fantastic. Uh, I believe so, it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm encouraged. There's only one review I, you know that's on amazon so far so
0: oh we'll it, give you it, some reviews
1: yeah <laughs> if 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 you like the book you know get your reviews up there and if you and if Definitely. you don't like the book you know get your reviews up there. <laughs> you don't care amazing yeah is you know like it, it, it's it's a small textbook you know that's kind of the way i'm you know framing it uh by you know somebody who's been in the you know, field for a long time
0: do you have any uh books in the pipeline or is this this could be the last one
1: uh no i like writing um yeah, I've got an idea for a book and I've got a proposal. It's called Altered States. That's kind of the working title. And uh, it's, it's it's a compilation and analysis of all the interesting altered states that I've uh, experienced myself.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. I'll be on the look for that one. Keep writing. I love your stuff. Dr. Thanks. Rick Steffman,
1: thank you so much for
0: being here. Appreciate it. Ali, you too. Everyone uh, at home, Later.